today, Easter Sunday 2016, I want us to look at the events and some of the effects of Easter. I'll tell you what, let's uh, begin with prayer, and we'll pray for teachability and also for the troops, peace officers, firefighters. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, we have... um, Believers all over this globe today, in a special way, zeroing in on the reality and the implications of the resurrection of our Savior. Uh, the death rate's 100%. A dead Savior can't get us from earth to heaven, but the resurrected one can, and he's the only one who can. And I pray those uh, truths and the implications of those truths would hit home in each one of our hearts. I pray the Holy Spirit inspired this text and has preserved it, would illuminate to our hearts, to your glory. And as we uh, enjoy uh, a comfortable setting here, we pray for those who put their lives at risk, be it our active military, our peace officers, our firefighters. We thank you for the service they selflessly give. And uh, we pray for their families who also serve. And I pray especially for believers who are in those roles. I pray for their testimonies and for their credibility and for their fruitfulness. We thank you for each one who's here. I pray you'd be glorified as we process your word and live it out. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to talk about the events of Easter. And by that I mean the events leading to and immediately following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we'll look at several key effects of the resurrection. And when I say resurrection, I mean the literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. So, um, I'm using the New American Standard Bible today. Uh, what, what version you got, Mike? NIV. NIV, New International Version. Anybody got, anybody got the King James or the New King James? Greatest English translation of all time. 400 years old, though. English language has changed. Some of us prefer other versions. Anything else? The message out there? James Price has the message. What do you got? Anything else? Amplified, contemporary version. Net Bible? Great. Well, you know what? Uh, there have been a lot of great uh, translations of the Bible over the last 50 years, but there are a few bad ones I have to warn you about. So here's a few bad editions of the Bible. You got the King James Bond version. <laughs> 007. There are a lot of car chases, you know, uh, in that version. The Bible Light. This is like Americans' favorite Bible. Fewer commands, more suggestions. You got the Dalai Lama really, really, really revised Bible. He's a Buddhist. And finally, uh, the number one really bad edition of the Bible would be the Home Depot Salvation by Good Works version, the ultimate do-it-yourself project. Uh, you know, I think that uh, a lot of Americans assume that Christians are basically saying we keep the rules better than they do, and it's all about obeying rules. But, in fact, the Bible makes it very clear that nobody can be saved by being good enough to earn salvation, a verse that... Uh, we often refer to in that direction says this, for by grace, which means unmerited favor. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, you can't unearn it, you can't undeserve it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith's a rational act, but it's not meritorious. It's active, receptive trust. And not of yourselves. You weren't saved by anything you did. It's the gift of God, not of good deeds. So there's nothing for the savees to brag about. And notice it says, not of good deeds. And so we're not saying as Christians we just keep the rules better or we care more. Uh, we just say we've got a perfect Savior. God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades based on the cross. And in fact, the Bible says in a couple places that if uh, salvation could come by Mike Palovic trying hard enough to be religious, uh, then Christ died needlessly. You don't have the Son of God making atonement for sin, if there are other ways people can be saved. And so one acronym for the gospel is God's offer of salvation providing eternal life to all who believe. 
You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul specifically says, let me define the gospel for you. It's the truth that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried uh, and he rose again on the third day according to the scripture. And he was seen by various people for 40 days. So, no less than Martin Luther said that the gospel's in one verse, John 3.16, that says, God, the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world full of sinful people like all of us so very much that he gave his not only begotten monogenation, the original means unique, only one of his kind, his unique son, the second person of the Trinity, who took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, and died on the cross as our substitute, that whosoever believes in him, and the Greek text is even better, it's an articular present active participle, it says that all the ones who believe in him, even Bobby Dudley in Mississippi, when she believed, she got saved. People in Africa, in Iraq, in Saudi Arabia, in North Korea, can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. That all of the ones who believe in him shall not future lake of fire perish, but have present tense eternal life. So uh, please realize that's the big context in which we look at the discipleship manual, better known as the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to look at the major events of Easter as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And when you look at uh, Matthew 26-28, through basically describes the evening meal. Most of us would call it Last Supper. The Lord's arrest by the temple police on the Mount of Olives. Sword play. Peter pulls a sword and tries to solve the problem himself. Trials, plural. We have a religious trial and a criminal trial. Expiation, what does that mean? I'm going to tell you in a minute and then resurrection. So we're going to use that acronym as a basis for our study. Let's start by looking at Matthew 26, verse 17 through 29. But let's read verse 26. I'm looking at Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating the Last Supper, we call it, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, here's a visual aid for you. This represents my body. Now, when we think of bread, I think of a loaf of bread and a slice of bread. But the bread Jesus had in this occasion was a matzah at a Passover meal for Jewish people. It would have been a large saltine looking like cracker with lines on it for the baking process, holes to vent the heat. So you're holding up something brant with lines on it and holes in it. He's saying, this represents my body. And the lines refer to the 39 lashes he got before He walks to the cross to Golgotha. And, of course, the holes, Kathy, represent the the wounds of the crucifixion. So it's a beautiful visual aid for his body. And when he had uh, taken a cup full of wine uh, and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Today, if we buy a house, we sign a contract back in... uh, this culture, ancient Jewish culture, there were shoe covenants, salt covenants, and blood covenants. And the really important one were blood covenants. It's like the Indians would have blood brothers. You would sign something with blood, meaning I'm, I'm really going to make these promises I'm making or this commitment I'm making. I'm going to follow through on it. Uh, and Jesus, by his bloody, violent, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice, paid for the sins of the world. This is God. He's perfect. This is you. You are his creation, but here's your sin, and our sin gets between us and a righteous God. You can't overlook that, but God in the person of Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, so he didn't need a Savior. And then on the cross, our sins were put on him, and he was judged in our place. And we call that substitutionary atoning sacrifice. And that's what he's zeroing in on here, and they're not totally understanding it all yet, but that's what's happening at the Last Supper or the evening meal as he institutes uh, the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper as we call it. So we have this evening meal. Now let's put this on a map and look at some pictures. This is a bird's eye view confirmed by all the archaeology, and they've done a ton of archaeology in and around Jerusalem. This is a bird's eye view of what Jerusalem looked like at the time of Christ. And we don't know exactly what upper room they were in, However, according to some good early history sources, the upper room would have been in the southwest quadrant 
of the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus is somewhere around there when uh, we have the evening meal. Now, thanks to Leonardo da Vinci, a lot of us picture it like this, uh, but that uh, type of table was not used at all in this context. They would have sat around a triclinium and uh, laid on their side and eaten this formal banquet. So that's kind of what it looked like, although that's not a photograph. That's just an artist representation of the Last Supper. Okay, so let's go from evening meal to arrest, and uh, you can read about that in verses 30 through 50. But let's just uh, look at a couple. By the way, let's move now. We're moving from the uh, upper room to the Mount of Olives and Garden of Gethsemane. Now, they would have almost certainly have walked right past the temple. And the temple, uh, in all of its rituals, were picturing and anticipating the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ and ultimately his sacrifice for sins. And it was a beautiful sight. Uh, it would have been lit uh, all night long, every day, every evening, every night. And uh, you wouldn't have missed it. These guys from Galilee would have wanted to walk by that every time they could. So they would have walked right past this institution established through Moses to speak to all of what's going about to ha- about to happen on the cross and through the resurrection. So that's pretty cool right there. Look at verse 30 in uh, Matthew 26. I always love this. Uh, just a little aside, I always think of James when I read this. After singing a hymn, they finished the dinner, then they walked from wherever the Last Supper was to the Mount of Olives, right past the temple. Drop down to verse 33. Uh, Peter said, uh, even though the bullets are start to, going to start to fly, Jesus said there's going to be some rough stuff, even though all of these other guys may fall away, the other disciples, these other losers, you know, he thinks of everybody else like that, a little self-righteous, I will never fall away. And Jesus kind of said, hey, big boy, uh, really? You're going to uh, deny me three times before the sun comes up, before the rooster crows. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, like right now, I will not deny you. And we tend, preachers love to pick on Peter, and, and you know, he made a promise, and he didn't follow through on it. But have you ever broken a promise that you really intended to, to fulfill? Uh, but Matthew points out, one of the disciples, he says, and all the other disciples said the same thing, too. So they're all culpable. They're, they're, they all chickened out under fire. But uh, I've certainly done that a few times, and I bet we all have. Verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, uh, a garden on the Mount of Olives, a place where he frequently took them for prayer, and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray privately. Just me and God the Father. Drop down to verse 46. After a season of prayer and some interaction where they're not doing, the disciples really aren't doing some things they should be doing, like praying, uh, he says, uh, get up. Jesus says to them, get up, let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is just around the corner. Judas is leading the goons to arrest Jesus. While he was still speaking that Judas was right around the corner, here comes Judas from around the corner, one of the twelve disciples. He came up accompanied with a large crowd of temple police. I mean, you needed like one guy to arrest Jesus because he's going to totally submit to this, and they got 20 or 30 armed to the teeth, like he's really a dangerous bandito here, a large crowd. And again, Matthew was here, so this is eyewitness testimony, with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Sometimes people criticize the Jews, the wicked Jews for crucifying Jesus, and the Jews didn't crucify Jesus, the Romans did. But the Jewish leadership, who had a vested financial interest in keeping their religion business going, and Jesus didn't line up with that, they're the Jewish influence that get the thing rolling, but that's not a slight on all Jews or all Romans or all any group. These are individuals making choices. Now, he who is betraying Jesus, Judas has to come to the darkened garden to identify the right person because these temple police might not, in those conditions, be able to recognize Jesus from the other guys because he looked just like one of the other guys. He didn't look especially handsome or unique. He didn't have a halo on or anything like that. As Isaiah the prophet says, the Messiah looked just like an average person. You wouldn't you wouldn't be amazed by his uh, good looks. Now he who was betraying Jesus, Judas, gave 
them a sign saying, whomever I kiss on the cheek as a sign of respect today, it'd be pat him on the back and shake him his hand. The guy I walk up to and shake his hand with a big smile on my face, he's the guy you want to arrest. Seize him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus as, you know, this crowd approaches him and the group with the disciples, and he says, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him on the cheek. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you've come here for. Then they came, that is the uh, the goons, uh, and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now realize, when you go from uh, Jerusalem, which is on the top of one mountain, to the Garden of Gethsemane, you go down a valley to the top of a, of a taller mountain. And we're looking now from the west toward the Mount of Olives. Uh, that is the Dome of the Rock. Uh, as you probably know, Muhammad lived from 570 to 632 A.D. By 70 A.D., they had conquered most of North Africa and all of uh, the region in and around Israel. On the Temple Mount, where the temples of the Jews had stood, they deliberately built that building, not as a mosque. The mosque is south of there. That's just a museum commemorating the victory of Islam over Judeo-Christianity, just so you'll know. But uh, when you come from over here, and you go down a, a valley, you go up here, and the, uh, remember that church, uh, you guys who went to Israel with us, uh, Gethsemane's right about there, it's not very far from that church, which wasn't there uh, at the time Jesus was doing all this stuff, but yeah, you walk almost a mile, and you end up right there, and that's what we're talking about in this in this walk they're doing, so Jesus can pray. Got some pictures from uh Israel trip a few years ago, there's Gethsemane, there's one of my two favorite daughters-in-law. Uh, this is the rock Jesus prayed on according to tradition. You have traditional sites in Israel. You've got authentic sites. Traditional sites would be like the Church of the Beatitudes where uh, they will say the Sermon on the Mount took place right here or thereabouts, but we don't know if it took place right where they built that church. We don't know if that's the rock Jesus prayed on. It could have been. Uh, it's in the vicinity, but... Uh, you have authentic sites like the Temple Mount, then you have traditional sites like that one. Uh, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, same location. And it's really a beautiful place. It's small. You know, uh, if, when you go to the White House the first time, some of the Lincoln, some of, the, some of these places uh, where they do the press conferences, they seem really small compared to your conception of it. And the Garden of Gethsemane is not a huge uh, place, but uh, it's a real place, real people, real places. Okay. We're looking at an acronym, excuse me, for Easter. We've seen the evening meal, Lord's Supper, the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now let's look at S, which stands for sword play. And uh, that's what I want right there. Let's read uh, what Matthew tells us about that. Look at verse 51 through 56. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, and we know it's Peter from the other accounts, uh, reached out and drew his sword. He had a little short sword for self-defense purposes. Uh, they had uh, conceal and carry back then in first century Israel. Uh, and But you didn't have to carry your picture or anything like that. You just, uh, and, stuck, uh, and struck the slave of the high priest, cut off his ear. This shows you how inept Peter's attempt to do something here. I mean, he's just swinging at random, and rather than doing what you're supposed to do, he swings vertically and cuts the guy's ear off. Uh, just mentioned in passing, it sounds almost funny, and it's not, it wasn't for him. It wasn't for the slave, for sure. Then Jesus said to him, Peter, put your your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? I, I can stop this anytime I want to. I'm submitting to this. I don't want to resist this. I don't want you to resist it. Uh, how then, unless I submit this to this, with the scriptures about a Savior making a substitutionary atoning sacrifice like the Passover lamb, like the Day of Atonement, uh, be fulfilled, would say it must happen in this way. Uh, and at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, and these had an overwhelming kind of shock and awe, awe kind of a contingent of uh, bad guys, uh, goons to come arrest Jesus, uh, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber or as some terrorist, some evil person that's very violent? Every day I used to sit in the temple area all day long teaching right outside your offices. You didn't seize me. Of course, they didn't want to do that in front of the crowds because that would have been very unpopular. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. 
of the prophets, uh, particularly uh, Psalm 22. And then all the disciples left him and fled. Now notice Peter says, I'll never leave you. Uh, Matthew says, hey, all of, all of us said that. And then as soon as he's arrested, they all leave. So that's fulfillment of prophecy there. And that actually happened. It's interesting when you read about this account in the other Gospels, uh, Luke, who's a medical doctor, mentions it's, well, I ask you, which, which ear got cut off? Do you know? Luke, the medical doctor, who's interested in medical details like Homer would have been, uh, mentions it's the right ear that got detached. Uh, John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John mentions the guy's name was Malchus. And I like the way that the uh, Passion of the Christ movie uh, portrayed this because I always thought, well, how could, because uh, the other Gospels mention Jesus reaches down and reattaches the ear, you know, supernaturally there. And you wonder, you know, once he did that, wouldn't that have slowed down the urge to arrest him and stuff? But if you watch that uh, scene in that movie, you know, when, when Peter swings and this guy starts screaming and blood's coming out, there's about 15 seconds of pandemonium and everybody's looking around everywhere else. Are there other people going to attack us? And Jesus just nonchalantly picks the ear up and just puts it back on. And the guy kind of goes, wow, yeah, thanks, bro. You know, and then boom, calm ensues and they just rip, you know, walk him away. So something like that is the way that probably would have happened. But for sure, you've got a miracle of grace there, um, even when Peter does the, the wrong thing the wrong way kind of thing. Now, E-A-S-T, transfer trials, it's plural on purpose because we have a religious trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court slash Senate rolled up into one. But they're operating under the occupying Roman authority. So uh, you've got it on uh, capital cases, especially you have to run it through the Romans before you could possibly have an execution. And that's what they want here. So let's look at T for trials. Look at verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus, the temple police, the Jewish temple police, don't take him to Pilate, the Roman. They take him to Caiaphas, the high priest, with the scribes and the elders, that's shorthand for most of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night, which is illegal to have a meeting in that uh, setting. So it's not an official meeting. They don't want to break any of the rules while they're killing the Messiah, you know. Uh, we're gathered together. Now, it's very interesting because when you track this out on the map of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem, you basically go right back to the basic area, the southwest quadrant of the city, because we know exactly where Caiaphas's house was. They've done archaeology on that. We know exactly where it was. And the high priest's house was kind of like the White House. It was his where he lived, but it was also where he did his business and did his job as, as a priest. So realize this isn't just his little house, a, a cottage. It's like the White House. It's got offices, and it's got dungeons beneath it. And you can go to the very dungeon holding tanks where the Lord would have been held that night. But here's the thing. We know according to some historical sources that when the temple police arrest Jesus here, they don't go back past the temple because if you take an accused felon past the temple, you might bring spiritual cooties into the region right around the temple. So you don't want to do that. So these guys who are very happy to basically lynch the Messiah don't want to get any spiritual cooties by walking him as an accused past the temple. So they stay outside the wall of the city and go through the water gate, which had nothing to do with Richard Nixon at that stage. That would come later. And they go to the priest's house where you've got most of the powers that be waiting there for an unofficial slash official meeting just to get the ball rolling. So by early thing, first thing tomorrow morning, they can get Jesus killed. This is a picture I took when our group was walking down from uh, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane on Mount of Olives down toward the Kidron Valley so we could get in a bus because we're Americans and we don't walk very far and then go into the inner city of Jerusalem. But you can kind of get a sense for the slope. Remember how slopey that was, Tom? It's pretty good, pretty good walk down that hill. And uh, there you get a feel. And uh, this is actually a shot from Caiaphas's house back to the, the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. It's, it's just a different angle. So these are all real places, real people, real events. Talk about the house of Caiaphas. Uh, just a few decades ago, they rebuilt uh, everything above the ground level, and it's actually uh, a Roman Catholic or um, Eastern Orthodox place of worship and administration. But everything below the ground level is first century, 
and uh, also the steps leading up to Caiaphas's house were our limestone steps, the very steps Jesus would have walked on with the arresting uh, party to get to the house of Caiaphas. And just and these are real people. That's Gene. Remember that Gene? So Jesus is sitting where Jesus walked. He's supposed to walk where Jesus walked, not sit where Jesus walked. Uh, there's Jamie. There's Jonathan. There's somebody. Good looking hat he's got on there. There's another shot of it's these steps. This stuff is modern and new, but that's the actual first century steps leading up to the high priest's house. There's uh, Julie Miller standing in front of those steps. And now we're walking down to the dungeon, uh, the holding tanks. There's Homer and Pam and Debbie and me and Jonathan. I think Candace is right behind Jonathan. You can see just a little bit of Candace, Candace's head before she started having twins. You walk down this ramp, and they actually have, uh, there's Kathy. Oh, next slide, sorry. There's Kathy. In one of the holding tanks where the Lord would have spent the night after they interacted with him briefly uh, after his arrest and the trip to Caiaphas' house. And there's the hole they either threw you down from or maybe hopefully lowered you down a little bit with some ropes. But, I mean, that, the fall could kill you if, uh, if things didn't work out there. All right, and that's the arresting party. Just overarmed, big galoots, really scary people arresting Jesus, already uh, abusing him, which is was against the rules that they were supposed to maintain. But that was the religious uh, trial, as it were. Now let's go to the criminal trial um, before Pilate, who's the Roman governor. The Roman Empire occupied this entire region. And look at verse uh, 1 and 2, chapter 27. Looking at the trials, first the religious-oriented trial, and now the uh, criminal trial under the Roman governor. Now, when evening came, after the Lord spent that that night in that holding tank, all the chief priests and elders. Now we do have an official quorum, an official uh, group of the seventy, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish uh, uh, organization, conferred together against Jesus, put him to death. He's got to go. He's messing up our business. He's claiming to be Messiah. And uh, if, if he's a Messiah, they don't, nobody needs us. So we've got a business to maintain. So they bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. He's the Roman governor. Now, typically the Sanhedrin and the Roman governor didn't get along. They didn't like each other for multiple reasons. But here, when they have a common enemy, they're happy to work together, right? That's just the way people are sometimes. Um, here's the thing. We're doing a lot of walking because uh, we spent the night in the holding tank here uh, that morning. They get everybody together, agree we want to have him killed. So let's take him to Pilate and insist that uh, he's offended us so much that the Romans need to kill him. And Pilate did not live in Jerusalem. He lived in the Roman capital of the region called Caesarea on the coast. We'll show where that is in a minute. But he would have spent the Passover season. And any time he had a lot of Jews in the city, just making sure there weren't any riots against Rome because uh, they're very insecure about things like that. So he would have been in this Antonia fortress, which had been very controversial, had built, uh, been built uh, not just adjacent, but attached to the northwest wall of the Temple Mount. And so he's right there. So they would have marched Jesus right through, you know, all the, the uh, regular act, activity, and boom, take him right there to where Pilate is, uh, Matthew doesn't mention this, but the other Gospels mention, at least Luke mentions, that when Pilate sees Jesus, he's, he realized he didn't trust the Sanhedrin. He knows they're a bunch of snakes. And he doesn't want to get his hands dirty and waste his time dealing with a Jewish religious matter. So he punts, and he sends Jesus to King Herod Antipas's palace. And actually... Antipas didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem either. He's over Galilee, but he's there for the Passover season and the Unleavened Bread Week. And so Pilate thinks, I don't want to deal with this, but I know Herod Antipas and, and these guys despised each other too. Uh, they sent Jesus to Herod Antipas, and Herod doesn't want to deal with it either. So he sends him back, which is interesting. And they're not that far away, uh, as it turns out. But where uh, you would have found... Pilate, most of the time, of course, he's in Jerusalem for the Passover season, and that's why uh, the Sanhedrin are going straight to the top of the chain to get him to check off on the on the execution of Christ. 
Uh, in fact, his offices were right here. You've got Caesarea Philippi, so this was a more recent city. Uh, and to distinguish it, it was called Caesarea Maritima. And that's like the first major place typically modern tour groups visit on the first full day of touring because uh, there's a lot of neat archaeology there. But several years ago, at that capital city, Caesarea, this inscription was found, uh, which said, Pontius Pilate, the prefect or governor of Judea, erected this building in honor of the emperor Tiberius. Tiberius was the emperor during the ministry of Christ, and Pilate was his governor for several years. And so uh, he's, he's definitely a historical person. Uh, these are real people, real places, real events we're talking about. And so, boom. Uh, that's kind of what that is. So look at verse 11. We're talking about Jesus appearing before Pilate. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, Pontius Pilate, and the governor questioned him saying, Are you the king of the Jews? That's the best they can think about, uh, use uh, to try to incriminate Jesus, the uh, Pharisees. They can say he's claimed to be king of the Jews, and we know there's only one king, Caesar, and so he's going to try to, you know, a format rebellion against Rome, which he wasn't. What did he say about that? Give unto God what's God's, give unto Caesar what's Caesar's. You salute the flag and you pray. Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, yes. Uh, the Greek form there means uh, emphatically yes. The most English translations kind of water it down because it's an idiom that means emphatically yes. Yes, I am. You ask me a straight question, I'll tell you. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, the religious guys had followed him to Pilate and just screaming, and they're all, there's 70 of them, so they're all talking at the same time. It's kind of like watching Fox News um, sometimes. Um, then Pilate said to him, uh, and he, Jesus just stands there almost bemused at all the horrible things they're saying about him and doesn't try to answer or doesn't get hot under the collar. And Pilate notices that and says, Do you not hear how many nasty things they testify against you? Uh, but Jesus did not answer him in regard to even a single charge. He didn't try to explain himself to Pilate and respond to the charges. So the governor was quite amazed at the Lord's calm under fire. Drop down to uh, verse 24, same chapter. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, he actually was trying to release a really bad a criminal in, instead of Jesus because it was his custom during this holiday season to release one bad guy. So he's, and he thought he had it rigged. He doesn't want to execute Jesus. So he said, hey, my custom's always to kind of release one guy, probably one nonviolent felon, but this time I'll get like the worst known murderer in town in custody. I'll put him in front of the crowd, and Jesus, surely they'll, you know, they'll let, let Jesus go, right? And he kind of puts them out there, and they all want Barabbas because they've been paid off. And that kind of thing was happening. But verse 24, when Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing by everything he was trying to do to get out of having to sign the papers for the execution, but rather a riot was about to break out. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this. It's not my fault, but I will sign the death warrant. So do do with him as you want to. And all the people said, ironically, his blood be on us and our children. So they released Barabbas, the clearly horribly uh, violent criminal, for them. Kind of a super uh, offender, super predator. And after having Jesus scourged, that's the 39 lashes, and that can kill you. That's kind of where the uh, passion of the Christ started. He handed him, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Crucifixion was a particularly violent, gruesome way to kill somebody. And the Romans reserved it only for those who were found guilty of insurrection or rebellion against Roman authority. And a big part of that was after you were found guilty, in this case of claiming to be a king in the place of Caesar, of being guilty as a traitor against Roman authority, the Romans would force you to carry your cross, or at least the cross beam, from the place where you were convicted in an open-air court kind of thing to the place of execution. And the idea, Jeff, was you'd publicly force the rebel to submit to Roman authority, the authority this rebel had formerly rebelled against. So when Jesus uses that metaphor for discipleship for Christians, and if you want to be my disciple, you got to uh, uh, take up your cross daily, deny yourself, your own personal selfish interest, and take up my cross daily and keep on following me. You're not saved by being crucified or taking up a cross every day. That's how Christians are supposed to live. We're supposed to publicly submit 
to his authority, the authority we'd formerly rebelled against, just like crucified uh, folks after they were convicted would be forced to publicly carry their cross, to publicly submit to the Roman authority they had formerly rebelled against. So there's a lot of important truth there in that symbol, but you'd be amazed at how many evangelicals make that into something it's not, and we've got to be crucified and crucify ourselves and do all this stuff, and this is not how you get saved. This is how saved people are supposed to live. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not about what you can do for God or what you're willing to promise for God. It's what he's done for you and what he promises you in Jesus Christ. That's why it's of grace through faith, not of works, right? That would be the correct answer on that. Yes, now let's move to E. Uh, evening meal, arrest, uh, sword play, trials, execution. And we're told that Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha in the Aramaic. Golgotha is the way most English speakers pronounce it. And just outside the wall of Jerusalem to this day, there is this very unusual rock facing uh, that looks like a skull to me. Uh, you know, many years ago I was a dental student, and uh, uh, world's worst dental student, but uh, the first thing we did for 12 weeks, you know, you spend your whole life, you think, as a college student, getting into dental school, and the first thing you do for 12 weeks is dissect a cadaver. And it makes sense for a dental student maybe to dissect head and neck, but we dissected with the medical students next to us. We did. We started at the foot and worked all the way up, you know. And eventually we had to do all kinds of strange things to this lady's skull. But we spent a lot of time looking at skulls uh, as dental students. And to me, that kind of looks like a skull. I mean, those are the eye sockets, and there's the nose, right? So you could kind of see how the locals might call that Golgotha. Now, there's a little bit of controversy about that, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, execution, that's kind of the generic uh, term here. But I prefer the term expiation, which is a theological term, propitiation, justification, expiation. Expiation just means to wipe something clean, just wipe it completely clean. And the death of Christ wipes clean the sin debt of those who appropriate him through faith. Now, there is a debate among historians and archaeologists, etc., about exactly where Golgotha is located. Everybody agrees this is what Jerusalem looked like in the first century. This is where Pilate would have been. Uh, but uh, after Constantine met a profession of faith, and that's controversial. A lot of historians don't think he really was a Christian. I personally do. We'll find out in heaven, right, Katie? But the, the Roman... Uh, Caesar, for 300 years we'd been illegal, and then in 313 he makes a profession of faith after winning a battle, and in 325 he sent his mother Helena to Israel to find out where all the where all the events happened. And when she got here, and it'd be like I always say, it'd be like uh, Jeff and I and K. Rob deciding in 2016 we want to go to Valley Forge, 1777, and ask the locals, and we got $500 bill, and watch out for that. We got five hundred dollar bills. We walk up to a local, and say, "Hey, we're uh, we're wanting to find out where George Washington's tent was. Could you t- you live here, right? We'll give you five hundred dollars if you can tell us where his tent was. Let me have the five hundred dollars. The tent was right over there, right next to my house. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that tended to happen at some of these traditional sites. But according to tradition, uh, Constantine's mother was told that Golgotha was there, and so you've got this." incredible church edifice built on top of it when you go there now, and you, it's, it's indistinguishable. You can't tell anything happened there much. There's a little alcove you can walk in, and they'll say there's where the rock was and stuff. It doesn't look real to me, but that's the majority of historians believe that was the actual site. Uh, on the other hand, the site I'm showing you, the garden tomb and the uh, skull-like looking, whoops, sorry, what's that? That it, yeah, that uh, 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 site is actually here. It's called the Garden Tomb, and that uh, the Garden Tomb is uh, just to the uh, side of uh, Golgotha. The picture I just showed you there. So, just realize there's some debate about that. There's no debate about the crucifixion happening. There's debate about the exact location. Okay, so that's that. Now, let's read some some passage about that. Some information about that. Let's see, let's look at uh, verse 27 through 33. Verse 27 through 33. Then the soldiers of the governor, the Roman governor Pilate, took Jesus into the praetorium 
uh, gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. Scarlet was the color of royalty. They're making fun of him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand to be like a, a, a fake scepter. And they knelt down before him, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed began to beat him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him, put his own garments back on him, and led him away to be crucified. He's going to publicly submit to the authority, but he's been so savaged by the 39 lashes and this other beating, he can't get very far very fast. So they end up getting somebody to help him, as you know, as the other Gospels mention. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they begin the crucifixion proper. To me, that looks like Golgotha. So even though I know most historians aren't on my side on that, you know, if they want to be wrong, it's fine with me. That's just it. We'll find out in heaven where the exact site was. Look at verse 37. Above his head, they put a sign with the charges and his charges, which uh, Pilate specifically said, this is the way it's going to read. The Jewish uh, religious leaders didn't like the wording. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. They wanted him to say, he said he was king of the Jews. <laughs> but Pilate said, no, we're going, to, we're going to do this. I want to say something about that inscription. But first, three things you might not know about Gordon's Calvary, about the Golgotha site I just showed you. Uh, since you can't say... Uh, uh, what is it, extreme Muslims, because that's a very hateful thing to say. Uh, let's just say people with an anti-Semitic, anti-Christian agenda have built, on purpose, a bus station directly in front of it, a mosque directly to the side of it, and a cemetery above it. Now, they don't tell you this, but once you go a couple of times, you realize, oh my goodness, they've built a bus station directly in front of this thing. You look at it from an angle. That's, uh, they built a cemetery on top of it, and they put a mosque right there. Um uh, for what it's worth, Israelis go way out of their way not to do anything anywhere near a mosque or any holy site, including allowing the, the Muslims, the Mufti, to have total control of the Temple Mount, because we don't want to insult those people unnecessarily. But the other side tend to go out of their way to desecrate Christian and Jewish sites, and that's just the way it is. It's not, uh, it's not a parallel universe. Uh, it's a very non-symmetrical thing. Uh, you'll notice... This is from Passion of the Christ. You'll notice this sign, and there was a sign uh, in uh, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin that said, uh, actually, what did it say? I got bad news and good news. This is one of, uh, a lot of skeptics see this as their, their best example of a, a, a Bible error or a Bible contradiction because they'll say things like, you can't trust the Bible, you kidding? You can't even trust them getting... Uh, Anything right. They can't even get the wording on the inscription of the cross right. Do you realize, hey Clay, do you realize that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, have different, four different inscriptions over the cross? How can you trust the documents like this? Well, you know what? They're right, but they're not totally right. The good news is, um, the bad news is they have four different wordings for the inscription. The good news is the bad news isn't bad news because uh, the wording's different but not divergent. What in the world does that mean? Uh, watch this, Doug. Matthew says the inscription is, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Mark says, the inscription says, the King of the Jews. Luke says, the inscription says, this is the King of the Jews. And John, uh, his version says, Jesus, Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now I would say, those are different, but they're not divergent, and they're easily harmonized. Uh, now if, if John had said, this is George from Greece, the Prince of the Gentiles, then we have a problem. But you don't have that. You have partial accounts. When you have four eyewitnesses, you're always going to get partial accounts. If it's exactly the same thing, they've gotten together and they've colluded. You know. So what do you think the entire thing said? This is Jesus, Nazarene King of the Jews. That's what it said. And what they're saying is all is all correct. It's partial but incorrect. Very seldom do you give totally complete comprehensive answers to anything. Drop down to verse 45. There's just not enough time. <laughs> Uh, in life. Uh, now from the sixth hour, we call that noon. Darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. This wasn't a three-hour solar eclipse. That's not possible. This was just, I've, I've been here. James and I have been here at one o'clock in the afternoon. It gets dark, pitch dark because the dark clouds roll in. You usually get a thunderstorm, but sometimes you don't. It rolls back out. It can be pitch dark here in the middle of the afternoon. This was three hours. And about the ninth hour, 
Jesus cried out saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, uh, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he sounds like he's having an existential crisis here, Ken, questioning God. I wonder what that means. We'll talk about it. And some of those who were standing there couldn't quite hear what he said. They thought he was crying out to Elijah when he said, Eli, Eli. Uh, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink. Uh, but the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. They're still making fun of him, the crowd is. Jesus cried out again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit with a loud voice. And he yielded up the spirit. If you want to find out exactly where he went, come Wednesday, uh, two Wednesday nights from now. We're going to do Wow Wednesday. We're going to go back to Sheol. We're going to Sheol. And two Wednesday nights, we'll show you exactly where Jesus went when he said that. Uh, it may not be where you thought. And uh, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And so people resurrected. That veil represented the separation uh, of, that our sin caused between God and uh, hum- humanity. And that symbol is torn from top to bottom, like an angel does that, to say, hey, uh, the separation has been solved because of the uh, work of Christ. And we also we have some supernatural resuscitations of some believers who believed that Jesus was Messiah, uh, who were resuscitated, but they'll die again. Okay, But uh, for lack of time, we'll just do that. Now, this schematic is showing you, we know that the crucifixion was from nine the three, April 3rd, 33 A.D., if Honor's chronology is correct. But the atonement takes place here. Okay? Uh, the Romans crucified thousands of people. Jesus isn't the Savior, isn't the Savior just because he was crucified. While he was hanging from heaven and earth, God the Father judged him for your sins and more importantly, my sins during this period. I don't know how you can do that. I can't reproduce that in the lab for you. But during that period, we have the substitutionary atoning sacrifice taking place. And at the end of that, um, or actually, right as he finishes that, he has the saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why forsaken me? He's quoting the first line of Psalm 22, which was a psalm written by David in 1000 B.C., talking about the atonement of the Messiah. Jesus is not having an existential crisis here questioning God. He's citing the first verse to stand for the whole thing, and he's saying, if you want to know what this means, read Psalm 22. He's citing Psalm 22 as applying to what he's doing on the cross. Okay, uh, Dogs have surrounded me in that Psalm. Dogs were a uh, term used for uh, Gentiles. Uh, they pierced my hands and my feet. They gambled for my clothing. All this stuff is prophecy, and he's saying, if you want some... Uh, Biblical information about uh, from the Old Testament about what I just did. Read Psalm 22. The Old Testament, in fact, gives a. a it's almost like the prophets of the Old Testament are standing on on a, one peak and looking at two different peaks, and the valley in the middle is kind of like the church age. They're seeing a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah, and because we don't like our heroes to suffer, the Jews tended to ignore that or explain it away, and they wanted a, a savior who would get the Romans off their back. That's what they wanted. They wanted a political deliverer. Uh, but in fact, the order is first. The, the uh, Messiah must be the lamb before he functions as a lion, and he's fulfilling all the lamb prophecies there, and that's what he's saying when he's citing Psalm 22. Right. And in fact, if you look at the data, you get a lot, you get a very good picture of who Jesus has to be based on Old Testament prophecy and his first coming. And Psalm 22 is just one of many, a myriad of data. Uh, Matthew doesn't mention this, but in John 19.30, Jesus says, it is finished, tetelestai. That'd be a good thing for a t-shirt. You've already done that multiple times, haven't you? But it is finished means paid in full. You'd put that on a bill of sale after you paid off. Uh, the guy, uh, if you paid the guy, he'd put t- Telestai on the bill. So when you're walking your your donkey through Jerusalem, they'll say, hey, you stole that donkey. You say, no, I didn't. Hold up the bill of sale to Telestai. So he's saying, it's finished. All the work necessary to get you from Oklahoma to heaven, Jesus has finished. He finished it on the cross, and his resurrection validates that. Okay, A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. And that's why we're not saved by circumcision, baptism, catechism, ordination, dedication, denomination, we're saved by God's grace through the work of Christ received by faith. Faith is not meritorious. It's the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. Okay, uh, let's go to the best part, the resurrection. That's a, a, sh- a shot from modern Jerusalem 
You've got Hebrew, Arabic, and English. Let's go to the garden tomb. Uh, look at chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, we are crucified on the Friday, Saturday's Sabbath, first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave because they had not been able to finish all of the uh, preparations of the body because the sundown on Friday hit and then Sabbath meant you couldn't do any work. Behold, a severe earthquake had, that's past perfect, that will help you with lining it up with the other Gospels, had occurred for the angel of the Lord, had an angel from God had descended from heaven, came away, uh, rolled the stone away from the uh, the tomb and sat upon it. That's the kind of thing he wouldn't make up. And his appearance was like lightning, clothing like white as snow. The guards, the Roman goons protecting it, shook for fear of him. They became like dead men. They didn't die, but they fainted uh, and were drug away by some cohorts, co- uh, colleagues, I should say. And the angel said to the women as they arrived, Stop being afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. He's not here. He's been risen. Uh, just like he said, come and see the place where he's lying. So the tomb was empty. Go quickly tell his disciples he's been risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. We read about that in the last passage here in Matthew 28, but we won't get into that today. Um, You'll see him there and other places. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. I mean, it's it's a scary thing to realize that death uh, uh, has touched and been transcended. It's just a, a scary thing to have to deal with those issues for any of us and yet transcending joy. And they reported to the disciples, and behold, Jesus met them on their way. He said, it really is me. And they came and took hold of him. They worshiped him. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. Relax. we got this under control. I got this. I got this. Uh, go and take word to my brethren. Uh, the Great Commission is going to happen in Galilee, and that's the way Matthew, the most Jewish gospel, ends. I would say it's a surprise ending. Take this message to the whole world, not just to the Jews. Uh, it's still empty. Uh, there's the there's the tomb. Uh, there's several of us there in line. Uh, there's a friend from West Virginia. There's Clay Cole. There's Bonnie. Yeah, Bonnie Aldridge waiting in line. Make sure the tomb's still empty. There's my man Tom Robertson. There's my first wife. Uh, my favorite wife. I love this. This is a picture of me taking a picture of Jonathan, taking a picture of Jamie and Kristen as Julie's getting into the garden tomb. Very difficult to do all that. And we did it in Jerusalem, too. Uh, and there's uh, Maxine. And I think that's... Is that K-Rob? That Maybe? Yeah, okay. Good. Okay, Easter 2006. That's the events of Easter. Let me finish by talking about some of the effects. I mean, the effects are myriad... There are probably hundreds of them, but I'll just focus on a few here as we finish. Okay, um, And the first one is just that uh, life after death is fact, not fantasy. If Jesus rose from the dead and he did, that means life after death is fact, not fantasy. Now, that for me as a Christian is my primary overriding reason for believing in Jesus as a Savior and believing in life after death. However, consistent with that, but secondary to it is evidence from OBEs. In modern times, out-of-body experiences. And not all of those uh, would line up with possible data for resurrection because some of them are probably drug-induced by the heavy drugs that people are under medically uh, prescribed or maybe because of just a dying brain gives you some distortions. But uh, a book that I've read most of called Proof of Heaven was written by... uh, Eben Alexander, he's a neurosurgeon in the Carolinas who had no brain activity, zero for one week. It was seven or eight days. Uh, he had been a neurosurgeon, didn't believe in OBEs. He had one. When he came back, his data, his experience proves, he says, my experience showed me, this isn't Billy Graham, this is Eben Alexander, a previously skeptical Neurosurgeon, my experience showed me that the death of the body and brain is not the end of consciousness. What happened to me while I was in a coma is the most important story I'll ever tell. I like to say it this way. Your mind, your consciousness is bigger than your brain. Your brain processes the function of your mind. Your consciousness, like a TV set, processes 
you signal from your cable. But if your TV has an audio problem, you will not be able to hear uh, uh, the actors on the screen when you watch the television show. But the signal still there. It's still inside the TV from the cable. It's not able to process. Sometimes our brains can have damage or lose parts of it, and we can't project some of the functions of the mind, but the mind transcends the brain. It's not just a phys- physiological kind of thing. If you're looking for something to read on OBEs and line it up with biblical data, the best one that's out, in my opinion, is called Immortality, The Other Side of Death. Habermas and Moreland are very well uh, credentialed scholars, but and they're also conservative believers, and so that's the best source. I mean, Moreland taught at USC, University of Southern California, philosophy for 20 years, so he's a pretty good source. And if you're looking for biblical data on uh, the resurrection, which I've tried to summarize, uh, David Jeremiah has come out with that book, which is very good. Okay, So talking about the effects of Easter, number one, life after death, not fantasy. Number two, Jesus is unique. I know this is offensive to a certain uh, element of our culture, but Jesus is the only resurrected Savior available. Muhammad is dead. Uh, Buddha is dead. We went to Thailand and they told us we could go and see a building where part of the collarbone of the Buddha was, you know. Uh, we've been to the garden tomb. There's nothing left there because bodily resurrection. Jesus is unique. He's the exclusive issue, the exclusive issue of eternal life. You cannot apologize for that. You need to say it in love, not with self-righteousness. But there's only one solution to the strict nine of human sin, and it's Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Uh, another effect of Easter is because of uh, the Savior, the crucified, risen Savior, believers aren't just given a second chance. We're given a whole new life. Jesus says, the one who believes in me uh, has everlasting life. Unless you believe in me, you'll die in your sins. Jesus says, as long as you have the light, believe in the light, that you may have eternal life. Everlasting life means not life till you sin again, but it's eternal. It's a new life. It's not a second chance to try to earn your salvation. And for me as a pastor who works almost every weekend, first day of the week is very special. I know that since the last hundred years, Americans think of Sunday as the second day of your weekend. But if you look at the calendar, Saturday is the seventh day of the week, and Sunday is the first day, and... Hey, you know, I got my whole family here. If I weren't a preacher, I'd probably go to Tulsa a lot more on the weekends or go to Edmond more on the weekends, but uh I've been called to do this and I'm happy to do it. So I realize you've got some options out there. If you can go visit your family or friends and or if you can do anything that's legal uh and not immoral and you got uh, you know limited amount of time on a weekend, go and have your fun. But when you're in town, uh, if you're a believer, you ought to make it a priority on the first day of the week. Uh, what's, what's so special about the first day of the week? That's when Jesus was resurrected, right, David? First day of the week. So every time Christians anywhere, and trust me, there are little home churches in North Korea and Saudi Arabia, and if they find out, those people are dead. In a real fat, like within 24 hours, they're dead. But they'll meet on Sundays, not on Tuesday nights, because Sunday is special because the day of the resurrection. So I would say the risen Christ is the ultimate game changer. And I mean game of life changer. Okay, There is no salvation any other. He's the only name under heaven given among men, among men whereby we must be saved. And here's the thing. You know, um, you're not really ready to live till you're really ready to die. And you can't be ready to die unless you've got a connection with the risen Savior through faith. So if you've never done that today, and we're not going to play just as I am 17 times and try to psychoanalyze you here. We're just offering you what God offers you, a free gift through faith. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. It's my fault. I break my own standards at my worst, much less yours. I can't fix it. Jesus can, and I want him to. I believe he died to pay for my sins and rise again. I trust him as my Savior. That's saving faith. Nothing meritorious about that. You won't believe how much stuff's going on in the theological background to get you to that place. But... That's how you receive the gift. And here, the thing is, I'll end with this. Jesus is risen, and he's going to return. And, and, and you've got to reckon with him. You're not going to have to deal with Buddha or Muhammad, but you're going to have to deal with the Lord Jesus. So today we celebrate Easter. Uh, we celebrate Christ risen from the dead, and we are ant- anticipating his return. And it better be soon, because the North Koreans have nukes. Let's have a word of prayer.
Father, we celebrate the literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that means. I pray that all of us would respond fully from the heart to him as you enable us to do that. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.